BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When I was six years old, a little girl of the same age went missing in my hometown, Ellie Bakerfield. She lived just a few streets down. It happened one night in early summer. She was just snatched, right from her bed. There was no sign of forced entry at the house, and the perimeter alarm hadn't gone off or anything. The only evidence that anything was amiss was a houseplant in the hallway outside our room that had been knocked over on its side. Her parents found her bed empty in the morning and called the police immediately. It's a relatively small town, about 20,000 people. Bad things happen here sometimes, sure, but nothing like this. Nothing like a little girl just vanishing without a trace. Everyone was shocked. How could something like this happen here? Furthermore, who could be responsible? My parents were particularly upset. They were friends with the Bakerfields. My dad was a repairman, and he was the guy they always called when they needed work done around the house. My mom played bridge with Mrs. Bakerfield on Sundays, and Ellie and I would play together too, though I don't remember her much, just vague impressions that have grown duller with time. The first few days after her appearance were rough. There were no obvious suspects, no creepy uncles, no weird family friends, no registered sex offenders in the vicinity. The police, of course, questioned the family and everyone close to them, but they had no leads. My parents were very supportive during that time. I remember staying with my grandma more often because dad was helping organize search parties and mom was cooking for the family. Eventually, my mom brought me to my grandma's and we stayed there for a few weeks. Grandma lived about 40 miles away in a neighboring town. We'd been planning on staying there for a while anyway, since we were renovating our house at the time. We'd finished the downstairs, but now Dad was working on the upstairs, which meant we couldn't sleep in our bedrooms. Mom decided she would make the trip early, and Dad would stay behind to keep helping the Bakersfield look for Ellie and to get more work done around the house. They really thought they'd find her. My parents were convinced that she was alive and well, probably somewhere in town. They just had to track her down is all. But then days went by, and those days became weeks, and soon after, it was months. After some time, a police suspicions shifted to the family. The Bakersfields were brought in for questioning and Mrs. Bakerfield was interrogated for six hours. This was even worse. The poor family that had lost their only daughter was under suspicion for murder. Because that's what it is at this point. Murder. Everyone thought it, even if nobody said it. Everyone was sure by this point that she was dead, and that soon they'd find her body. 
They never did find her body. And the Baker's fields were never charged with murder. I mean, how could they be? There was no evidence. The case grew cold, and people gradually began to resume living their lives. Mom and I moved back to the house. People started to look sideways at the Baker fields, ignoring them, refusing to speak to them. Even so, they never left our town, and they never stopped looking for Ellie. It's been a long time since then. I'm in my 30s now, married with a little girl of my own, Eloise. I inherited the house after my mother passed away. My dad died a decade before she did. Even after all these years, I still think of Ellie sometimes, and her parents. Her father died by taking his own life about five years ago. Couldn't take the strain of waiting anymore. Her mother, though would not leave the house. Not until Ellie was found. It's hard not to think about Ellie when I look at Eloise. I wonder what I would do if someone snatched my child up like that. I hate thinking about it. A few months ago, Roger and I decided we would do some renovations to the upstairs. We planned to give my childhood bedroom to Eloise, but since it's so small, we thought we'd knock out the wall, separating it from the neighboring spare bedroom. Eloise loved the idea, of course. She made us promise that she could have the unicorn wallpaper. Funny the things we think are important as children, isn't it? We started taking down the wall, and it wasn't very long into our project that we found something. Inside the wall, there was this sort of... box. A wooden box that had no reason to be there. Not much of a construction expert myself, so I thought maybe it was nothing, but then I realized it wasn't even attached to the wall. It had just been stuck there inside. My husband helped me take it out and put it on the ground. The lid of the box was nailed on. I pried the nails off while my husband stepped out into the hallway to answer a phone call. I opened the box and there was this smell. Inside was a tarp. I reached in to grab it and it felt damp. I lifted it out of the box and started to unravel it on the floor. As I did, the smell grew stronger until it was overpowering. Inside there was... There wasn't much left. I screamed and Roger came running. When he saw what I'd found, he escorted me out of the room. Actually, he practically carried me. I was a shrieking, panicking mess and there was no way I could walk on my own. He was just barely able to prevent Eloise from running into the room to see what the fuss was about. I called the police, obviously, who retrieved the remains and blocked off the house. Roger took Eloise and me to stay at a hotel. I couldn't stop crying. Eloise asked me what was wrong, offered to give me her favorite Barbie if it would make me feel better. I just cried harder and hugged her so tight that I thought I'd never be able to let go. The police were able to confirm Ellie's identity by her dental records. Ellie's mother was notified. 
and was at the police station when she arrived, having just given my statement to the officers. I heard her sobbing these terrible cries. Never heard anything like it. It was like 30 years of grief just coming all out at once. I wonder if she still thought somewhere deep inside that Ellie might still be alive. A few days after her remains were positively identified, the police announced the case had been solved and released the name of her murderer. Mrs. Bakerfield died just two months afterward. I think all this time, the only thing keeping her alive was Ellie. Now that she'd been found, she could move on like a ghost that had been trapped on this earth for too long. As for me, my husband and I have decided to sell the house. We've been staying with friends while we tried to decide whether or not to stay in town, if we should buy another house, where we should move, if we do. Well, I guess the more accurate thing to say is that Roger is the one thinking about these things. I am thinking about my father. About how he organized all those search parties, about the years he spent doing their repairs, becoming familiar with every inch of their house. How he never once thought the Bakerfields were guilty. I'm thinking about my father. About how he organized all those search parties. About the years he spent doing their repairs, becoming familiar with every inch of their house. How he never once thought the Bakerfields were guilty, even when everyone else began to suspect. But most of all, I think of the years I spent sleeping in that bedroom with her body not eight inches from my head. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My first memories aren't of my mother, but of my grandparents. They were already old when I was a toddler, but they seemed so full of life and joy at having me in their lives, and until I was six, they were my world. But then, my mother came back. She'd run off years ago with someone, and when she returned, it was with a new baby. A little sister for me called Amber Lynn. Before I knew what was happening, I was whisked away from my old life by a woman I didn't really know to a different house a different family, a different life. In those early days, I felt like Dorothy when the house finally landed in Oz. The world was similar, even familiar in some ways, but the things that were the same only made the rest more disorienting. That was my mother's house, her world, not mine. And just like everything around me now, she was a stranger. Children adapt quickly, though. I had only a few weeks in the first grade of my old school, and while my new school was old and run down, some of the other kids were nice enough. 
After a month, I had a couple of friends and was starting to get used to living with my mother, even if I was still a little afraid of her. Not because everything she did, really. At this point, she didn't do anything that six-year-old me could point to and say that was bad, or really that different than my grandparents or other people I knew. She kept me fed and clothed. She didn't abuse me and made me take baths and go to bed at a reasonable hour most nights. And once I accepted this wasn't a short-term change, I think I made peace with the grief of losing my old life, even if I still missed my grandparents terribly. That made it easier to accept this new life. But I was still slow to accept her. Not because she was loud or cruel, but because she was so quiet, so pensive. I could see she was wound so tight, I worried she might break at any moment. And I had no idea what might happen to me if she flew apart. But time wears down so much, doesn't it? I never lost some level of fear or anxiety, but by the next summer, they no longer registered most of the time. And my mother, while still strange, was no longer a stranger. I'd started to trust her a little and love her more, if only because I didn't have any other options. When she told me the last day of first grade that my grandparents had passed away in a fire the month before, I cried for them and for me, and she held me and stroked my hair, told me it was going to be okay. And I had her and my little sister, too. Burying my face in her chest, I nodded and tried to ignore the panicked fluttering in my heart. Between ages seven and nine, things were normal. Amberlynn was growing fast and growing on me faster. She followed me around all the time back then, and I didn't mind a bit. I was proud to be her big brother, and I felt like making up for some of our mother's indifferences toward her as well. It was so strange. My mother took care of her well enough, but she never spent time with her beyond what was strictly necessary. Never showed any real emotion toward her other than, well, looking back on it, I think it was some kind of tense distance, though at the time it just came across as resentment. Either way, I felt sorry for Amberlynn, and I loved her. And then one night, my mother woke me up to help kill my sister. I was terrified, of course. I was a week shy of ten and not stupid. When she took me awake and led me into the bathroom with the tub already running, I knew something was wrong. When I leaned over and saw Amberlynn in the bottom, unconscious and already mostly covered by several inches of water, I tried to pull away as I felt wet creep across the front of my pajama pants. No, my mother whispered, her face gnarled into a hard frown. No, there's no time for that. You have to help me with this. You have to learn it. I yanked again at my arm, but her grip was too strong. What are you doing to her? She sighed. What must be done? With that, she pulled me closer and picked me up as she shoved me toward the tub and leaned us both over. The water was almost to Amberlynn's mouth and nostrils now. My mother grabbed me by the waist and forced my hand onto my four-year-old sister's arm as she whispered in my ear. When she sucks in the water, she might wake up, try to struggle. That's when we must hold her down, hold her down until it's done. No, I... liar. She gave my wrist a painful twist. No questions. You'll do what you must, just like I do. 
Now keep your hand. My mother broke off as Amberlynn sputtered water and began to sit up. Grimacing, she pushed my sister back down below the waterline while forcing my hand against the toddler's flailing arm. I just remember crying after that, and when Amberlynn was finally still, my mother taking me back to my room, telling me I did good, and that this was just for us. To not talk about outside of our family. Somehow, I fell back asleep in the blue-gray morning hours, and when I got up to get ready for school, I was half convinced that it had all been a nightmare. My stomach was in knots as I crept down the hall from my room to the bathroom, but I kept telling myself I was just being silly, that Amberlynn was probably already downstairs eating breakfast with Mom. It had all just been... She was... She was still in the tub. The water had been drained away, but as I stepped closer, I saw her gray skin and pale, sightless eyes staring up to me as I turned into the sink to vomit. Wiping my mouth, I backed out of the bathroom as quietly as I could manage and slipped out to the bus stop without ever seeing my mother at all. Once I got to school, I told my teacher. At first, she thought I was lying, but when I started crying, she carried me to the principal. I was terrified they would just call my mother and send me home, but to their credit, they didn't. They called Child Protective Services and the police, and by lunchtime, I had been talked to by both. Everyone was very sympathetic and kind until a call came in. Police had done a welfare check at the house. Amberlynn was alive and well. I could tell at that moment everyone went from being concerned to being irritated, though they tried to hide it for the most part. I argued with them, told them it had to be a mistake or a trick, that I'd seen my little sister. I'd been there when our mother killed her. But no. Apparently the cops at the house had seen Amberlynn themselves, and while I wasn't being officially suspended, the principal had to talk to my mother and suggest I stay home for a few days to sort things out. The teacher actually got a substitute and drove me home herself. She was a nice lady, but I could tell she didn't believe me now either. She told me on the drive about how I needed to always be honest, and telling lies could hurt people and my mother, still fairly new to town with two kids to raise by her lonesome, didn't need any more hurt or worry than she already had. I just stared out the window, dreading every mile that crawled by and brought me closer back to her. I half expected her to scream at me, attack me even, as soon as I got out the car. Maybe then they would understand that I told the truth. But when we pulled into the driveway, my mother and Amberlynn were there waiting. She was smiling as my little sister waved at me. It didn't make sense. I hadn't imagined all of that, had I? I had this new twist in my guts. Was there something wrong with me? I got out of the car. My mother swept me up in a big hug, telling me that it was all going to be okay that we were going to get me whatever help I needed, that she loved me so, so much, that she did, and so did Amberlynn. I felt a strange mix of fear and embarrassment and gratitude. Maybe it was me, after all. Maybe I was crazy and imagined it all. 
After a couple of minutes of awkward conversation, my teacher drove away as I held back my mother's hand and waved. When she passed out of view, my mother shook me free and looked me down with a frown. Told you not to say anything. I spent the next few weeks waiting for the other shoe to drop. Anger, punishment, violence. But there was none of that. My mother didn't mention it again, and terrified of talking about it now, neither did I. I did try bringing it up to Amberlyn once, but she just giggled and said I was silly. After that, well, my little sister seemed the same as before, and I tried not to treat her different, but I couldn't help it. Either something was wrong with me and I'd imagined it, or something was wrong with her. Because if it had all really happened, she'd been dead. The next two years were a period of brittle peace in our house. Amberlynn started school and got her own friends while I became desperate to spend time with mine whenever I could. I made an art out of playing sports, doing extracurriculars, sleeping over at friends' houses. I learned not to say anything bad about my mother, not that I had anything new to say, but that didn't mean I wanted to be in her house with her any more than I could help. But there are limits to staying away when you're a kid. Most nights I was still at home, and over time I began to doubt myself more and more as the edges of these memories began to soften and fade. One night I lay in bed, thinking about everything and feeling guilty. We'd all had dinner and watched TV together, and for a few hours everything had felt like what I imagined normal to be like. Maybe that was just it. They were normal, and I was the weird one, the one messing everything up. After all, my mother was still a strange woman, but she wasn't unkind. In spite of the trouble I'd caused, I could tell I was still her favorite. And Amberlynn? She was older now, and seemed happy a lot of the time when I saw her at school, but at home, I saw her growing stranger in the loneliness and her close proximity to our mother. With me avoiding her most of the time, all Amberlynn had was her, and I was afraid she was like food left in the fridge too long, picking up the oddities of the things around her. Unless, of course, the odd things in the house was... Get up. It's time. I let out a short yell as I turned over to see my mom crouched next to my bed. I shouldn't have known what she meant, but I did. Some part of me, small and hard and buried beneath all the self-doubting bullshit, had always known. She was going to kill Amberlynn again. This time, she used a hammer. Amberlynn was out cold and tied to a tree at the woodline of the yard, and my mother demanded that I take the first swing, told me it was my duty, that it would get easier after the first time. When I refused, she tried to grab me and force me to hit my sister. But I was bigger now, stronger, and so I fought her off and ran for the house. I could hear the first thuds of the hammer before I made it inside. I tried to call 911, but my mother was one step ahead of me. The phone was dead in the kitchen, and when I tried the one in her room, it was too. 
was turning back to run out of the room, out of the house, to go find someone to help somewhere, anywhere, when I saw my mother standing in the doorway to her bedroom. She still had the hammer, now coated with blood, hair, and torn meat, dangling from one hand, and her arms and chest were splattered in red. I knew that was it. The end. She was going to come for me, and either she was going to kill me, or I was going to kill her. And while the thought terrified me, I welcomed it in a way. Anything for it to be over. Instead, she stepped back and shut the door, locking it. All of the windows had security bars on them. They'd been like that since I'd first been brought here at six, so I barely noticed them most of the time. Trapped in that room for the next day, I had plenty of time to think about those bars as I tried to get past them. Plenty of time to consider how much the windows and doors, the alarm systems and locks, were all closer to a prison than the homes of friends that I'd visited. When I was freed the following afternoon, it was Anne Berlin that let me out. She gave me a hug and told me she missed me. I lied and told her, and I was happy to see her. I tried not to show how much my skin was crawling until I could slip back upstairs to my bedroom and lock the door. After that time, Mom quit trying to get me to help kill my sister, but she didn't hide it from me either. I always heard or saw some of it. Amberlynn was burned to death when I was 14, decapitated when I was 15. At 17, Mom tied her to the same trees before and then yanked her head off with a chain in her pickup. There were even a couple of times I saw traces left behind that my mother had missed during her meticulous cleanups. But I just ignored them now. It didn't matter. Amberlynn always came back a few hours later like some undying revenant. Yet despite it all, I was the true ghost in the house. I ate my meals in my room mostly, and any interaction with either of them was always guarded and tense. There were still times when I wondered if I was the crazy one, but I decided if I was, I didn't care. I just wanted to not be terrified all the time. That's why I started working when I was 14, and by 17, I'd saved up $12,000. Enough to get me away and let me survive until I got into a college or found a steady job. I'd pushed for extra credits the last two years of high school, so I already had enough hours to graduate by January of my senior year. When I went to my principal and asked for permission to go stay with my ailing grandparents out of state the last part of the year, he didn't ask too many questions. He'd been the principal there for a long time, and if he knew I was lying, well, maybe he figured I had my reasons. He said I could call in and give them an address, and they'd mail me my diploma when summer came. I traveled halfway across the country and got a new job while going to a cheap community college. Two years later, I had the grades and the time and stayed to transfer to a state school as a resident. I went through fast again, though this time it wasn't because I was running from something, but because I was running toward it. A new life, free from the nightmares of a childhood, I felt I'd never truly understand. A mystery I just wanted to forget. I got a scholarship to pay for part of graduate school, and as of now, I'm in my second year as a child psychologist focusing on behavioral and cognitive therapy for victims of abuse. 
I like my job and my life, and most days now I don't think about how I used to be scared all the time. And then last month, my grandmother called. She said she'd gotten the number from a letter sent by my mother's attorney when she died. When I told her that I thought she'd have been dead since I was a kid, she started crying, told me that no, they'd actually spent years looking for us, wanting to make sure I was okay, that we all were, that they'd known there was something wrong with my mother, and that when she disappeared when I was a baby, and they should have known she'd come back just to get me and vanish again. She said my grandfather had died of a heart attack just a couple of years ago, but that he never stopped hoping they could find me again. Never stopped thinking about me or loving me. I felt a hot, sick hatred swelling up in my chest for my mother. She'd stolen so much from me, from all of us. I didn't care if she was dead. I was glad. And when I said that to my grandmother, she didn't scold me. She just sniffled quietly for a moment and then asked me how I was. We spent the next three hours talking on the phone, and the next day I drove back to the house I remembered from the early happy days of my childhood. My grandmother was older than in my memories, but not so old as I would have thought. As it turned out, she'd only been in her early fifties when I was taken from there the first time. We spent the next weekend catching up and enjoying being together, and it wasn't until Sunday afternoon that she finally broached the subject of my mother again. I say it was a fire. Burned down most of the house, I think. It... They won't say it was a suicide directly, but... Well, the letter was mailed the day before. She must have known what was going to happen. Despite myself, I asked the question I've been avoiding since I got her call. What about Amberlynn? Was she... Was she there? My grandmother frowned and shook her head. Your mother's letter said Amberlynn is overseas now with her father, and the police didn't find any sign of her around their past when she graduated high school a few years back. She looked up at me with a nervous glance. I haven't asked because... Well, I know you ran away years ago, and I know you'll tell me why when you feel the time is right, but... You haven't heard from your sister, have you? Lowering my eyes, I shook my head. No, I haven't. I felt that familiar, guilty fear stealing across my heart, making me feel like a child again. I try not to think about that part of my life anymore. She reached over and patted my arm. I understand, but I think you may have to, at least for a little while. I looked up at her, my eyes wide. Why? She slid a set of keys across the table to me. Because your mother sent this to you in my letter. Because everything your mother owned belongs to you now. Driving back to my mother's house after so many years felt like sliding down the throat of an old nightmare. It was as though I thought she was going to crawl from the burnt ruin and drag me back in. <sighs> Shit, maybe part of me did believe that, even after all this time. Because I reconciled the fact that I had a bad childhood. My mother was unstable and violent and terrifying, and her relationships with me and my sister were abusive and strange. 
Whatever happened when I was growing up, my memories of murder and resurrection were just the warped coping mechanisms and fantasies of a very sad, very scared little boy. But even knowing that now, it was hard pulling up to the house. It really was burnt almost down to the ground. The front walls of the house were mostly there in spots, but even from the car, I could see through black and broken brick and wood all the way to the woods behind the house. Funny enough, I still had to use one of the keys to get past the front door. I took each step inside gingerly, keenly aware of stepping in the wrong spot or having something fall in my way. Still, it had been three weeks since the fire, and I didn't intend to be there long. My grandmother had suggested I not visit at all, just sell the property cheap and be done with it, sight unseen. I considered it, but the idea made me wary. Much as I hated it, I needed to see it again, if only to confirm for myself that it was really gone. That she was really gone. And there were also the other two keys. The first one had clearly been a house key, and that had opened the front door. The other two were smaller, thicker keys that I didn't recognize. I didn't figure I'd find where they went to looking through the burned-out shell of the house, but I guessed it wouldn't hurt to keep an eye out anyway. When I made it to the back hallway, I saw what remained of the door leading down into the basement. This part of the house didn't seem as damaged by fire, but it looked as though the fire department had broken down the door to go down and check for survivors. I could see several pairs of sooty footprints heading up and down the concrete steps that led down into the dark. I didn't want to go down there myself, closure or not, but wasn't that more reason that I needed to? If I was really going to put this behind me, I needed to beat the fear... This all still held over me. Forced myself to fully accept the truth. That my childhood wasn't haunted by some undying creature posing as my sister, but simply by a mother who was severely mentally ill. Sucking in a breath, I headed down the steps. The basement was largely empty other than a couple of tables covered in tools and a pair of long metal boxes in one corner. Turning my flashlight on them as I walked closer, I realized what they were. Huge steel gun safes. A twin pair of them. I slowly shook my head. I didn't remember these. Didn't remember her even owning a gun, but she could have gotten it in the years after I left, of course. Shining my light back across her tops, I saw brass ovals where a small, thick key might go to. My stomach clenched as I forced myself forward and crouched down beside the gun safe on the right. My hands were sweaty and shaking, so it took me three tries to get the key in the lock, but when I turned it, I heard the metallic thunk of the lock disengaging. Holding my breath, I pulled open the lid and looked inside. It was bones. Hundreds of human bones. My first horrified thought was that my mother must have been killing people over the years. Maybe I knew it and had suppressed it, turned it into some bizarre fantasy about her killing my sister over and over But no. I saw several skulls in there. All identical except for their size. 
One had several cracks as though it had been struck with a hammer. Another looked badly burned. And they all belonged to my sister. Let me out. I let out a scream at the muffled whisper to my left, crabs scrabbling across the concrete floor. I stopped on the far side and stared at the gun safe. And I really just... Let me out, Evan. Even after all these years, I recognized her voice. It was soft through the steel and deeper with the passage of time, but it was still Anne Berlin whispering from the inside of that metal box. I... That's impossible. This this can't be happening. Let me out and we can be together. I've missed you. I clenched my fist around the keys in my hand, barely feeling it as they bit into my palm. I couldn't leave her there, could I? But how could she be there in the first place? How could she still be alive? The gun safe jumped slightly as something hit it hard from the inside. You can let me out now, or I can wait until it's time again. And then I'll get out on my own. My voice sounded high and thin when I spoke next, and it seemed to take all my strength just to push out the words. Time again for what? I thought I heard a slight laugh from the middle box, and then... <laughs> you know, silly. Shuddering, I made it to my feet and took two steps at a time. Once I was outside, I got in my car and drove all day until I was back at my grandmother's house. She didn't ask me what I found or why I looked so haunted. And when I asked her if she knew someone that did construction, someone I could trust, she gave me a name and number without hesitation. Three days later, I was back at the house, supervising the work. It only took two more for them to get it done. I was terrified the entire time that someone would hear a voice from the basement, but no one did. I'd only heard it once more myself when I was down locking the bomb box back before the construction crew got there. What are you doing, brother? Stepping away quickly, I made it to the steps before I gave my reply. Doing what should have been done a long time ago. When I left the house after the work was done, it was for the last time. Yesterday I went back to visit my grandmother, and after some time she finally did bring up my mother's property, asking if I was fixing it up to sell. I shook my head. No, I don't plan on selling it, ever. When her eyes went wide, I went on. I don't plan on going back there, either. I'll just pay the taxes on it and let it sit. It can rot for all I care. She frowned slightly. Why do you want to have the work done out there, then? Or did you change your mind about that? I shook my head. No, they did their work. They were reasonable and did good. I was out there the whole time, watched them demolish the house and then fill the basement with concrete. My grandmother blinked. Why? I reached over and took her hand as I met her eyes. Because some things just need to be buried. I liked Ben. I really did. I mean, he was a nice guy. 
We had some fun times together in college, messing around the dorm, going to parties, all the dumb shit that college guys do. He was cool and all, but he was a little pretentious. Well, I guess the word he used was artistic. He thought he was real smart, spent a lot of time trying to prove it to everyone. He had his own blog developed to film critiques. Not the big ones, though. Just little indie productions because nothing else was worth his time. When he got like that, he could be pretty insufferable. Perhaps the most annoying thing he did was performance art. Now, I don't want to be the guy who says that all performance art is dumb, but... Yeah, no, all performance art is dumb. Oh, look, you're on a display painting a picture of Jesus from your own urine. How original and edgy. Maybe I'm a little jaded, but it always seemed so contrived to me. Fortunately, Ben really loved it. He thought there was something beautiful in art that was physically living, and he devoted an embarrassing amount of time to it. Anyway, I hung out with Ben a few times after college, but we mostly just met up to do some heavy drinking and maybe hit a strip club or two. He considered that performance art as well, which was just fine with me. Gave me an excuse to waste some ones. Since we didn't hang out very often, I had a bad feeling when he contacted me about a month before last Halloween. He called me up at about 7 in the morning on a Saturday, which is too early to even consider waking up, in my opinion. I answered in a daze, and he started running his mouth like crazy, as though afraid that if he didn't get it all out at once, he never would. Mikey, hey, Mike, listen, buddy, I need your help, okay? Okay, okay, I've got this idea for a performance, and, well, it's gonna be killer, you know? So good. It's going down on Halloween. Can you come help? Look, I'll even pay you, man. Fifty bucks. How about it? No. I've never cared much for Halloween one way or the other, and I'm a pretty easy guy. Fifty dollars to probably just sit around and run a fog machine or some bullshit? Sign me up. For the right price, I could even pretend that I wanted to be there. Besides, what else are friends for? A few days later, he gave me the details. To be honest, I was a little shocked when he sent me the email. I know that performance art is intended to be edgy and can sometimes get a little dangerous, but this seemed like downright neglect. Thanks for agreeing to do this for me. I've talked to a few other people where they weren't really comfortable with it for reasons you'll probably be able to figure out. Of course, I understand if you want to back out, but I think you're probably the most reliable person I know. It's really not that big of a deal, I'm sure you'll agree. As I'm sure you've noticed, vampires have become very prominent in the media as of late. I say vampires because they are beginning to deviate so wildly from the traditional myths that they resemble forest fairies more than anything else. Altruistic? Sparkly? Whiny? <laughs> Give me a break. We need more Dracula. We need more Carmilla. We need more Death, destruction, and blood. My performance will center on the theme of rebirthing the vampire. For the vampire to be reborn, he must first be buried. To turn people's attention back to the myths of old, I will be doing 
just that. I will be burying the vampire. I have a group of viewers signed up already to participate in the performance, so you don't need to worry about that. I'm going to plant a series of vampire-themed clues around town for them to follow. The clues should be pretty simple, and it will probably take no more than an hour or an hour and a half for them to find me. Here comes the somewhat controversial part. Essentially, for this performance to have any semblance of meaning, I need to be buried alive. Don't worry, it's perfectly safe. I have a buddy from back home who's built me a coffin with a hole in the top. I'll be fixing it with a pipe that will stick out an inch or two above the ground. That way I won't run out of air. I also have a few necessities in the coffin in case something happens. Food, water, and a flashlight. Once they arrive at my grave, which will be completely vampirized, they will be provided with an array of shovels that will bring me back to life. A reincarnation of the true mythological history of vampires. Here's where you come in. I need you to bury me. In addition, I need you to be my safety net. If they can't find me, if something goes wrong, if I become sick, I need you to be the one to get me out or call the police, if necessary. I'll also need you to decorate my grave, make it real creepy. Don't worry, I'll send you some blueprints. I know this is a little stressful, and it may take some time for you to decide, but rest assured, this is a completely safe project. There's no danger of suffocation, and the coffin is sturdy, so it's very unlikely that it'll collapse. I really just need you there for support and the actual hard work of burying me. What do you say? I'd even be willing to pay you $100 if that's what you need. Let me know. R.I.P. Ben. I stared at my screen for a few minutes. Completely dumbfounded. Once I cut through all the bullshit about art and vampires and rebirth, what it came down to was... death. This guy actually wanted me to almost kill him. I mean, sure, it probably was safe, but my mind went over the plan slowly. What if I couldn't get him out in time? One shovel and a pile of dirt wouldn't be a fast job. Furthermore, what if something happened to me? Before making a decision, I sent him another email asking if he was really sure he was up for this. Of course he knew, he said. And then he said something that would always stick with me. Art must be a little dangerous, my friend, for it to be real. A month later, I found myself standing at the foot of a grave. It was six feet deep and perfectly rectangular. Sitting at the bottom was a tapered coffin covered with black lacquer, a white skull painted on the top, and the eye of the skull was a hole just big enough for the PVC pipe. Stenciled underneath was a line from Dracula. For the dead travel fast. I stood there like an idiot, waiting for Ben to show up. In the end, I decided to go along with this stupid gig, but Ben was a stubborn bastard, and if I didn't help him, someone else would. At least that's my justification. 
but the real reason was that, deep inside my heart, his words were still echoing. Art must be a little dangerous for it to be real. I ended up doing a little more work than I had intended. For one, I had to place his stupid clues around the city. It wasn't hard work, but it took some time to get them all in the proper places. Luckily for Ben, they were pretty obvious clues. There was no need to worry that his participants would be unable to find him. Ben had set up the grave in a coffin a few days prior to Halloween. It was out in the woods, just on the outskirts of town. No chance of it being disturbed. I'd tried to talk him out of burying it the whole six feet down. Something happens and I need to get you out fast. What will I do? Can't you put it closer to the surface? Ben had just shaken his head in exasperation. You just don't get it, do you? It has to be done right. Remember what I told you. Art must be a little dangerous for it to be real. So I shrugged and let him mess around with whatever dumbassery would get him off. I was just beginning to wonder if I should have brought more beer. This promised to be a long night when Ben finally showed up. I had to restrain my laughter when I saw us get up. A cheap Dracula costume from Walmart had never looked so pathetic, especially when topped off with those cheap plastic fangs. He greased his hair back and painted on a widow's peak. I couldn't resist. <laughs> wow. Seriously, dude? He gave me a stern look. It's a comment on the commercialization of vampires and horror as we know it today. He fished around in his pocket and pulled out a walkie-talkie. Here, take one. The range isn't very far, but my phone won't work that far underground. You'll have to stay nearby. Let me know if you're going out of range. I shrugged and took it. Okay, but you brought your cell just in case, right? Well, what good will it do if it doesn't work? This guy's batshit insane, I thought. But he handed me the hundred dollars and suddenly it didn't seem to matter anymore. I held him into the coffin and shut the lid. He seemed pretty calm. If it were me, I knew I'd be having a panic attack. I fit the PVC pipe into the hole. It slid in perfectly snug. I climbed out the coffin and grabbed my shovel, taking one last look at the shiny black peeking out from the dirt. With a resigned shrug, I started to shovel in the dirt. Okay, well, he asked for this, I thought. It took almost a full hour to get the dirt piled in. PVC pipe was just barely visible over the grave. I piled the earth around it to hide it as well as I could. Then I set up the rest of the grave, a hideously gothic headstone made of styrofoam and cheap Walmart flowers. Once it was finally finished, I sat back against a tree and waited. There was an awful lot of waiting to be done. Three hours later, his participants still hadn't come. He'd buzzed in on the walkie-talkie a few times, asking me if they'd shown up. I continually answered in the negative, wondering how long he'd be willing to keep up this charade. He must be getting worried, I thought, staring at my watch. 
It was already 10 p.m. and not a soul to be seen. Hey, Mike, something must have happened. I I don't think they're coming. Can you get me out of here? Ben's voice crackled and faded in and out of the static fuzz. I took another swig of my beer and heaved a sigh. Of course they weren't coming. They were frantically searching for the last clue. My hand crept into my pocket as I felt it folded there, the creases poking at the soft flesh in my palm. Mike? Are you there? Did you go out of range? I turned the walkie-talkie off. I didn't need it anymore anyway. Carefully, I picked up a handful of disturbed earth from the top of the makeshift grave. I poured it down the pipe and listened. I heard the muffled exclamation, the series of expletives. Then I could hear a thumping sound. Must be hitting the top of the coffin. I smiled a little to myself as I poured more dirt through the pipe. Ben's struggles got louder and louder, and I felt a certain heat rising up in me. I knew it could be good, but I didn't know it could be this good. This was incredible. This was perfect. This was godly. Eventually, I grew bored of shoving earth down into the coffin. I could hear Ben screaming and sobbing, reverberating up the pipe. I yanked a handkerchief out of my back pocket and stuffed it inside. I made sure to plug it up good and tight. It would only be a matter of time now. Assuming he could regulate his breathing, he could possibly have a few hours, but I knew he was panicking. And that would simply serve to shorten his time. Pounding grew weaker as I finished my beer. Once I was certain there was no saving him, I went to finish my work. Ben was right. Everything really did go off without a hitch. I don't know what it was I was so worried about. I'd gone to find his lost sheep, the wayward participants who were scrambling in frustration for the last clue. I scolded them for making us wait so long, acted the part of the reluctant friend indulging his lunatic companion. I took them out to the grave. It was now past midnight. They sat hushed as I gave the stupid speech that Ben had prepared for me. Everything seemed normal. I made sure to stow away the rag before anyone could see it. Friends, foes, and everyone in between. Tonight we gather to resurrect the ancient horror that has plagued mankind for centuries. Its tale, once a gruesome epic of blood and seduction, has become nothing more than the commercialized fodder as society has aged. Now the time has come for the phoenix to burn and rise again. So too shall the blood-soaked visage of the vampire... My voice resonated through the woods, and the morons in attendance clapped as they all reached for their shovels. We dug him up in about half an hour. It was much faster work with this host of suckers. It was good that we reached the coffin quickly, because I could barely contain my excitement. Two of the men opened the coffin and screamed. The woman leaned in over the grave to peek as well, full of expectancy. There was something... Dreadful about the scene, to be sure. 
Ben's face had gone gray, sprayed over with a few specks of dirt. His hands were bloody, his fingernails pried off. Deep scratches decorated the top of the lid. The men who had opened his tomb dragged him out in a panic, unsure if this was part of the performance or not. A few moments of silence, listening at his chest produced no heartbeat. The proclamation was definitive. He was dead. They screamed. They called the police. They alternatively looked at his body and shielded themselves from his horror, enraptured yet struggling. They ignored me. But that was fine. It was fine because they were admiring my work, the work of a real artist. Finally, I had been given this opportunity to prove my worth. Finally, I had found my sacrificial lamb. And it had been a rousing success. The heat raging in my body affirmed that much. I didn't even care if I was caught so long as I could have this moment to hold for the rest of my life. Ben was right. And I should have known. A man of principle never lies. And I owe him a debt of gratitude for realizing the artist within me. Art must be a little dangerous for it to be real. <laughs>